episode two of Errors of Continuity, presented by the SLS cast. Errors of Continuity is a podcast geared toward the film industry and driven by in-depth discussion on various topics ranging from filmmakers to the movies they make. This is part two and the conclusion of the discussion over Stieg Larsson's Millennium Trilogy and beyond. Last week, parts one and two of the Millennium miniseries was discussed, covering the entire The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo story and David Fincher's 2011 remake. Episode two will cover parts three through six of the Millennium miniseries, covering the entire The Girl Who Played With Fire and The Girl Who Kicked the Hornet's Nest stories, starring Nomi Rapace and Michael Nickfist. And the controversial sequel books, The Girl in the Spider's Web and The Girl Who Takes an Eye for an Eye, written not by Stieg Larsson, but by David Lagerkrantz. Now that we've got that out of the way, welcome cinephiles, and we hope you enjoy the show. Your Errors of Continuity hosts are Matt and Tim from the SLS cast. I am Tim. And I am Matt. Joining the conversation today once again from the Great White North and the Johnny White Trash Show podcast is Leather Spanks collector and ankle piercing enthusiast, Johnny White Trash. How are you doing, Johnny? What the hell was that? <laughs> Okay, that one got me off guard. Uh, hi, folks. I'm Johnny White Trash. Uh, Johnny White Trash Show. JohnnyWhiteTrash.com. White Trash Show on all social medias. If you're just tuning in and for some reason didn't listen to part one of the discussion, I will note again that we will not be covering the theatrical releases of the three Swedish flicks. At least Matt and I went back and watched the 2010 extended TV versions, which were originally released on a premium pay French TV channel as a miniseries in six parts, with each film presented as two 90-minute episodes. Today we'll be talking about parts three through six of the miniseries, covering the entire The Girl Who Played With Fire and The Girl Who Kicked the Hornet's Nest stories. You can find the extended miniseries on Netflix if you are in the U.S., where it's called Dragon Tattoo Trilogy Extended Edition. You can also find the extended versions on Blu-ray. That was the second time saying it, and I'm still a little confused by all these titles and title changes that we mentioned beforehand with the whole girl who blew up the yada yada yada, and you know now it's the hornet's nest and all this stuff, but miniseries... Same movies, different titles, but longer. That's the gist of it. Now, let's pick up where we left off with talking about the second book in the second original Swedish movie, The Girl Who Played With Fire. The book came out in Sweden June 2006. In U.S., we got it in 2009. The movie came out in Sweden on September 18th, 2009, and we got it in the U.S. on July 9th of 2010, Part 3 of the Swedish miniseries aired on April 3rd, 2010, and Part 4 aired on April 10th of 2010. Before the U.S. saw the second movie, even in theaters, they got to see it on TV. It was directed by Daniel Alfredson, the screenplay written by Ulf Rydberg. This again stars Michael Nyquist and Numi Rapace. 
The budget information wasn't available, but worldwide the movie did gross over 67 million US dollars, and in the US it grossed 7.5 million in a limited release. So, Matt, how about a little synopsis action for The Girl Who Played with Fire? All right, Girl Who Played with Fire is the middle, it's the, it's the Empire Strikes Back of the Dragon Tattoo trilogy. And in point of fact, it really kind of is. So we're picking up more or less, at least in movie time, uh, more or less right at the conclusion of the first movie. And we find that Elizabeth has come back to Stockholm after a little bit of a sabbatical, if you will. She does steal money. I don't know if we mentioned that in the... Well, yeah, week. okay, yeah. So basically at the end of the first movie, in, as part of getting her revenge on on the establishment and the people who... She decided to... And of course... She she took she basically stole money that was stolen. And so it's kind of one of those, what are you going to do, right? You know, how are you going to prove anything? But it's not that she just stole money that was stolen. She stole a, a billion kroner is what she stole. So in the neighborhood of three to five hundred million U.S., depending on inflation and how you want to look at it. So either way... Set for life as far as that goes. So she comes back. She buys a nice apartment and everything like that. And... She actually takes care of a former lover of hers and sets her up in her old apartment and what have you. This is all happening at the same time that uh, the Millennium Magazine is bringing in some new people who are following human trafficking in Sweden. And, of course, it turns out that the human traffickers are actually involved in some way, but unknown, with Lisbeth. This all happens to coincide with Lisbeth being framed for murder as far as as, as, everything goes down as far as that goes and then as as i like to say shenanigans ensue gun battles are had escapes are had chases revenge true love uh you know as i princess bride into this i don't know why by the end of this one things are not looking very good for lisbeth to say the least the story has while it is the backdrop of human trafficking and everything it's the key players in the human trafficking that really come to bear on the story of lisbeth and and then of course sprinkled as a b plot is kind of like well why didn't you know michael and lisbeth ever hook up and you know they're kind of mad at each other but not mad at each other and you know she's mad at him first and he's mad at her back kind of a bullshit thing in a much more roundabout way with spoilers included because obviously that's what we're going to be doing here what i thought was very interesting especially reading more background on stig larson is how his past definitely ties in more so with these two movies since These movies now are going to be dealing more so with corporations and far-right groups and whatnot. I'm I'm trying to remember, is there anything in particular we didn't cover last episode that we could talk about now pertaining to Stig Larsson and these next two movies? I think these two movies basically... Okay, so we didn't really cover much of what happened other than he just died and was famous after his death. Died of a heart attack going up a flight of stairs when the elevator was out, right? Yeah, basically he he subsisted on a diet of quarter pounders, the, the Swedish equivalent of quarter pounders and cigarettes. So basically two to three packs a day. And 
he yeah he was not in the best of health elevator was out he said fuck it i don't have time for this runs up the flight of stairs and then of course that physical exertion ultimately led to his heart attack and yes he passed away but there's a lot of stuff that goes into the myth that is stig larson that kind of comes to bear in both the girl who played with fire and the girl who kicks the horn girl who kicked the hornet's nest and that is that while stig larson was vehemently anti-fascist and anti-nazi and everything like that he was definitely on their radar and he was definitely someone who was clearly a crusader for justice and everything but by all professional standards was not really successful at his crusade other than at least irritating the people he was crusading against and so in these two movies, and this, of course, in these two books, uh, you're kind of seeing the channeling of what uh, of what Larson had to deal with in his life as a retaliatory effect. Now, while it was serious, like he did have legitimate threats on his life, it was never as super hugely engrossing and complicated as the movies are going to make them out to be and as what the conspiracy lays out in the books. But that feeds into the mythos because, wow, he's, you know, he did these kinds of things and, you know, he was never framed for murder or anything like that. But, you know, he did these kinds of things and, oh my gosh, all this stuff. And so all of this stuff kind of feeds into the myth that became Stig Larson after his death. And it's even more to the point with the girl who kicked the hornet's nest when we get there. And yet, at the same time, you know, he he didn't really have that. It was just his obsession with getting who he felt were the bad guys in in life and not letting fascism and and the idea of the Nazis and everything else take over. And, And I think that's, what's really important in terms of inspiration and background to take is that, Sure, it gets blown up in the books and everything, because that's what makes great fiction. And then, of course, you take that to the nth degree in a movie, because that's what movies do. But these things fed into the myth behind the man. So it sounds like what you're saying, Matt, is uh, to all the kids out there who are aspiring to be writers is, be careful, kids. Being a social justice warrior doesn't pay unless you die. <laughs> is that what you're saying? Am I? Did I miss the point? <laughs> I would like to focus on the fact that at no time did I say social justice warrior. <laughs> Other than that. Oh, oh okay. My, my that's, mistake. That's mainly accurate, I guess. Paraphrasing included. Well, and, but that is kind of a reflection of the times, too. Whereas, you know, right now, social justice is hot. And, and it's, you know, on, on whatever side of it you're on, you know, the snowflakes, the bro flakes, the cucks, whatever, whatever everybody's supposed to be called now. Right now, it's hot. Right now, it's getting clicks. Right now, it's getting views. Right now, it's getting all this stuff. Back then, everything was a little more subdued. You know what I mean? Like, if you got a little too uh, preachy with whatever your side was, it was just like, okay, settle down, you know. We're not fighting a one-man revolution today, you know. And so, I, I don't know if that plays into anything. It just, other than it was a slightly different time. Fair enough. All right. (laughs) (laughs) But then there's also, like with this, there's a lot of covering up. A bulk of what the antagonists are are doing in, especially the girl who kicked the hornet's nest, which 
You know, I guess I'll just do the the specs for that one real quick. The Girl Kicked the Hornet's Nest book came out in Sweden, May 2007. The U.S. got it this around the same time as The Girl Who Played with Fire in 2009. The Swedish movie came out in November 2009. The U.S. got uh, the Swedish version in October 2010. Part 5 of the miniseries aired April 17th, 2010. Part 6, the next week, April 24th, 2010. The director was Daniel Alfredson again. He directed uh, The Girl Who Played With Fire. The screenplay written by Ulf Reidberg and Jonas Freakberg. Again, stars Mikkel Nyquist, Numi Rapace. On a budget of $5.3 million, The Girl Who Kicked the Hornet's Nest grossed worldwide $43.5 million, but in the U.S. it grossed $5 million. So, I mean, it still did pretty good for its budget. But what these movies, with the, again, what the antagonists seem to be doing quite, quite a bit is covering up, doing a lot of covering up. And with Stig Larsson, it seemed like there was constantly somebody threatening him. At least the articles I've been reading, it makes it seem like he was being constantly threatened. To where, I think it was the Expo magazine posted something, and it turned out the magazine, they received these death threats. Kind of like Mikkel's partner in with Millennium, she ended up receiving death threats. I forget in which book and movie it was. Very much the same way that Larson was receiving death threats. And then, like, all the newsstands that would carry the magazine, which was exposing these right radicalists, these neo-Nazis, they were vandalized by these Nazis with horrible graffiti and all this stuff, pretty much denouncing the magazine. But then there was also the story where somebody called Larson at his office and basically said, you will die today. And that really freaked him out. He looked outside of his window, saw this one guy sitting by himself on a bench outside the entryway of his building, of his office building, knowing that Larson couldn't call the cops to say there was somebody sketchy sitting outside of his building. Can you go arrest him? He lied and said that he saw somebody scouting out a location, carrying guns or threatening people, or or he basically just lied saying that this guy was doing something bad just to get the police out there. And when the police caught him, they found that this guy was carrying all these guns. And so Larson knew somebody was after him. So he ran out the back door and ran home. If all that is true, at least if he thinks it was true, it definitely carried over to these movies, which dealt heavily on what's going to happen, who's going to fuck whoever over. It's not necessarily all about how is Lisbeth and Mikkel going to solve the mystery and figure out what's going on, but it's also the other side of the story. How are the antagonists going to go about prevailing and securing their innocence and their secrets? And the books just go deep into the whole like Swedish Secret Service side of things and why they're covering up because it's, Again, it's not that it's a deep conspiracy theory. It's that, you know, they're trying to shield their own incompetence from years ago. So, you know, now they've got to do this thing. And, and like, you've got some pretty decent political power behind these forces trying to get rid of Liz Lisbeth because of her dad. You know what I mean? Yeah. I also like how this kind of goes to show that um, at least Western governments are pretty much kind of all the same. <laughs> right. I mean, seriously, they fuck something up, and instead of just owning up to it, dealing with it, and moving on, no, 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 let's cover it up, make it ten times worse, and then just run a scorched earth policy as soon as we get found out. And, and then it's the people's fault. Am I out yeah. of touch? No, it's the students that are wrong. 
And so I guess to bridge the final two movies, by the end of the second movie, The Girl Who Played With Fire, Lisbeth finds out that Z- uh, is it Z- oh, shit? Is it Zala? Zala? Zalar? Zala. Zala is the name of the head of the trafficking organization. Zalanchenko or Chenkov is the general or major general, whatever the hell, who ends up being Lisbeth's dad. Yeah, and then you find out Lisbeth has this very interesting half brother, tall, buff, blonde dude. <laughs> who can box, but he's kind of too stupid to know how to really box. But what's interesting about him is that he doesn't have any feeling. Like, his, he has some kind of weird disease. He has no pain re- Like, literally, he has no pain receptors. Exactly. Yeah. So, and so he feels nothing. But, okay, at the beginning of the first movie, and I don't, I don't know if this is how it plays out in the books or not, but at the beginning of the third movie, this guy who's trying to silence the organization, one of the antagonists trying to keep the secrets from leaking, goes and shoots... In the head, Lisbeth's father, who they share a same hospital, because at the end of the second movie, Lisbeth confronts her half-brother and her father, who end up trying to bury her pretty much alive. She ends up climbing out of a grave, confronting her father, who she wounds, and so that's how they end up at this hospital at the beginning of the third movie. And so Lisbeth's father gets shot. Lisbeth is charged for these other murders tied to, well, at least a couple of them are tied to uh, a couple people working for Millennium who were trying to uncover the sex trafficking scheme, which a gun belonging, I don't remember if the gun belonged to her or not, but her prints were all over the gun, were found at the scene of the crime. Or no, 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 I guess it was at Pig Guardian's house, because Pig Guardian got shot in the face, and they found that gun, and they thought she killed both the Pig Guardian and uh, the people that worked for Millennium. And so that is why now she's having to go to trial fend for herself but really the trial at least in the movie doesn't play out until the last act of the films and in the books is the trial more of a of a big thing like a focal point in the third book yeah the the third book is pretty much like in from my knowledge is pretty much all trial and what goes with that um because uh it, like it's kind of like what's happening during the trial while trying to get um, you know, footage to surface and, you know, trying to get, let, um, trying to get Lisbeth to let Bloomquist's sister help her and all of this and the revelation of the DVD. Um, the, the third mo- like the second book is pretty much, you know, Lisbeth trying to kill her dad again. You know what I mean? Yeah. And just that whole ordeal and everything that goes into that from, you know, Millennium. And the Millennium part of the movie seems to be downplayed, too, because there's a lot of, like, Erica leaves Millennium for a while, goes and works at another newspaper, and then comes back. They had a leak inside Millennium in the first book. There's just a lot, again, right? There's a lot of story going on in these three books. But the third one, to uh, finally answer your question... Uh, yeah, the third book I remember is mostly trial, mostly dealing with that. At least the movies, the pacing is significantly different from the first one. The, the first movie in the first book is like a murder mystery on the surface, but really it's setting up these characters for an even bigger, larger, grandiose story. And I, I just find this absolutely fascinating because some of the critics, actually most of the critics who who weren't as big as a fan as the trilogy as a whole, are basically saying, well, the first book 
the first story starts out with a bang, and then we go into a lot of character stuff. But by God, is it fascinating character stuff? I mean, all these stories are character-driven stories. Because with most stories, it's either character-driven, plot-driven, driven by a theme. But these are definitely character-driven stories. Matt, what did you think about the pacing? Because the pacing does change a little bit when it does come to expounding on the characters. There's not a whole lot of new story when you get to the third film. Honestly, I like the movies. The movies are good. But I really think that um, if the girl with the dragon tattoo is, you know, the firing of the gun, then the remaining two movies are kind of you know, wafting the smoke away and reloading the pistol. And while those are equally as important, because we have to see what we'll be firing at next time and we have to reload so we can fire again, it's not as exciting, it's not as exhilarating, and in some ways not as satisfying as, you know, seeing the gun go off. And the things that caused the gun to go off in the first place, right? And that's how I feel about Played With Fire and Hornet's Nest. Because the story is is important. Because it's going into the who's and the what's and the why's. It explores more about what Millennium is really about and, and what Blumkiss is about. It goes into why and how Lisbeth ended up being the girl she was at the beginning of the movie uh, or at the beginning of Dragon Tattoo. Uh, you know, I get it. But the simple fact of the matter is you've got this one explosive uh, murder mystery, this really fantastic whodunit, uh, followed up by just real human stories. And the thing is, is that you don't really get to see that there's going to be a tonal shift coming. And that needed... Because when you're coming off Girl with Dragon Tattoo, it almost feels like books two and three, aside from, you know, oh my gosh, is Lisbeth going to make it? It almost feels like books two and three are really more of a denouement than anything else. So Sorry, not familiar with the term. Uh, it is the relaxing of the tension after the climax. So movie cuddling, sorry. <laughs> sure, but it also, but it, but it's also uh, happens in plays and in books as well, right? And I think that's ultimately where I think a lot of people make find that it feels wonky. And I'm going to ask this from you, Matt, because at least you and I are both going off the movie, and I know Johnny has the books to go off of. But do you think it's a fitting? climax or it was a fitting climax for the millennium trilogy like do you think everybody got their just desserts and everything went down as good as it could have gone without there being a, a fight scene or explosions or you know like anything else michael bay would have added to this movie if michael bay was going to <laughs> make this movie like were, were you satisfied well, I mean, uh, uh, could you imagine uh, 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 Could you imagine? Oh, it'll be like grainy and green coloring, and it would be awful. Uh, the girl with the whoa, 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 dragon tattoo. <laughs> well, I'm sure, except for except for there would literally be a hornet's nest that would turn into a robot and then explode in the in in the jury in the jury part. Yeah. At any rate, um, I I, I do I, I and that's why I say they're good stories and and the movies themselves are good, but. 
it's just such a it's just such a drastic tonal shift but for what for what they were doing and how they were bringing everything to a close yes that's fine which is good because in terms of girl in the spider's web yeah that's a book i guess i'll just wait and when we get there i'll bring it up one thing i do want to point out about the music and i didn't mention this last episode when we were talking about trent reznor and atticus ross's score i've really like how the, the the score in these movies really it's an underscore and so when you have this scene taking the trial scene taking place you don't have this like bombastic uplifting score to show you that it's going to turn out positively for Elizabeth. they rely on character and that's what i really love about this series and of the little bit that I've read of the books, I get that from the books as well, that it's it's so rich. These stories are so rich. You don't need a John Williams-esque type of score or this crazy electronica score to really put the viewer in the mood or in that headspace of what these characters are going through or, or the atmosphere that these characters are currently in. To me, at least, that's what added to such a great ending to this movie because it was all on the characters. There weren't all these other technical aspects that the movie had to tie up and build up to to really cap the movie off. It just relied on what was written on the script and how these actors portrayed it. Johnny, what, what did you think? Again, just kind of dealing with kind of what Matt was saying, like the, the first book really seemed like it was written as a book. It was it was one book and it kind of had one story and it tied up the loose ends. But when he started writing the second book and um, he just realized like, the second book was like, you know, what if, for lack of a better term, what if we made a TV series based on what happened after that first movie? And the one difference I kind of noticed between the books and the, and the movies that I really remember is the movies had the benefit to know that they were stopping after three. The book, like, it doesn't end with a cliffhanger or anything, but it, it the books are written in a way where it's like everything that happened in these two books is is clearly driving forward onto the next thing. Oh, really? Stig, before he died, had parts four and five all but written, is uh, some of the reports I've read, and decent amount of notes and synopsis planned out for ten parts of this story, right? That focused a lot on Miguel and Lisbeth, <laughs> for lack of a better term, kind of playing the Tony and Angela thing where it's like, are they going to get together? Are they not? He's old enough to be her dad. He knows it. She knows it. Age doesn't matter to her. Blah, blah, blah. Like, you know, it, it kind of just plays off that. And, and I, and I think that's a big difference is, I mean, I mean, part two and three don't play as separate parts in my brain. And I, that's probably the way the books are written. Whereas it's just, again, more think more, the writing of a TV series than a movie. And that first one, as much as I like girl with the dragon tattoo, it's actually my least favorite because it's kind of like Matt saying, like it, it is the, it's the shot. It's the bang. Right. And I'm like, okay, bang explosion. We did that. We got everybody's attention. Now let's the dust settle and, you know, and start going through, well, what, what would life really be like after that? You know? Right. And that's kind of where we're going. And the one theme I also noticed that he had I wanted to touch on too was um, the antagonists in in this. It's not really that they're like these ultimate bad guys. It's that the like Vennerstorm was a uh, you know untouchable guy. Martin Vanger was untouchable. You know the Secret Service guys, Zalachenko, 
the whole legal system, um, pig guardian, as you call him, which is what I call him now too. Uh, you know, these, these are all the untouchables. These are the people who every situation is like, yes, I will break the law. I will break the law right to your face because there is nothing you could do about me breaking the law. That just felt worth mentioning. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And throughout at least these movies, Mikkel Nyquist just plays him like a regular guy. Which And from beginning to end, he does that. So all of his character strengths, I think, stems from how a normal guy would play it. Like, there's something kind of fun about seeing a guy play this type of character where he sits down and you see his shirt bunching up, like when he's sitting on like a low couch or a low chair. And his he kind of has a gut. His shirt bunches up around his gut. Normally people, like in some movies, like Daniel Craig, you wouldn't see that. Like he would pull the shirt down or he would wear fancy clothing that doesn't cling to the body like that. But then also, Lisbeth continues fighting her own demons. In fact, her main fight, her main battle is against herself. And she has to uh, fight herself before she can fight everybody else. And that's how I think at least in my opinion, how this trilogy wraps up nicely because she can finally get to that point of her life. But I would love to talk about the two books that were released post Larson's death. And these, uh, shit, I forgot who, who, who wrote it? Who wrote it? His name is David Langer. Langer. Lager. Kratz. That, isn't that how you say crackers? <laughs> and is that a cracker brand in, in Germany? I don't know. I thought it was beer crackers myself. Beer crackers. But, uh, I thought it was no lager, name Jaeger Lager, beer, Kranz, crackers. I could, you know, I, I'm, I'm fine with, I'm fine with calling him David Beer Crackers, if you like. So Matt, are you familiar at all with these two books? Or at least the book that came out in 2015, The Girl in the Spider's Web? We definitely, I do recall, we talked about this on the show, on the SLS cast proper, when it was going down. And... Just to kind of tie everything into a little bow as far as the real life into... So, due to the nature of the work that Larson was doing in his life, he and his uh, longtime girlfriend, and basically live-in wife, her name was... Uh, we, we settled on Eva... What was her name? Javerster Wiener. <laughs> yeah, Gab- Eva, yeah, Eva Gabrielson. And they never got married. However... All things. Did we cover why they didn't get married, though? That's yeah, because of the threats on his life and stuff. They they were well, yeah. And if they married, they had to, to publish publicly post except, their address. Except, I think that in the course of thirty years, look, I'm not saying that he shouldn't have got a proper will in place before he died. I, that that you know whatever. But especially if you know that you're being hunted down, I would think having a will in place would be a pretty important thing. But in the intervening 30 years, especially since they got permission to hide all of their personal identifying data and everything like that, I think that there would have been a way for them to get married. Look, life choice aside, if you don't want right. to get married, don't get married, fine, whatever. Um, at the end of the day, I do feel like this specific situation was preventable. And for whatever reason, they didn't go down this road. And unfortunately, when he passed away, they were not married. They had no kids. He had no will that was valid, according to the Swedish law, and therefore Eva has no recourse. So all the rights, all the everything reverts to his family, which consisted of Larson's dad and his brother. They 
have since definitely part and parcel of the, you know, let's make money, which is fine. Eva was like, this is not what he would have stood for. They have tried to buy her off, as she would put it. They they say, look, we're trying to include her by giving her money. And she's refused the money. And although she has the actual, she has his real notes, his real everything, and she won't release it. What we're left with now is a publishing house, movie studios, you know, a ravishing public or a ravished public who want more. Uh, rabid. There we go. That's the word I'm looking for. And so we're now left with, well, what, what do we do? And so they decided to keep the money train going by simply hiring a new writer and continuing the story since, you know, the publishing house through Larson's family has rights to the names, the characters, all that kind of stuff. That's what they did. And they've made new books that are going to be made into movies. Sony is doing this new one, which is uh, The Girl in the Spider's Web. Uh, in 2017, which is later, actually later this year, we're getting, what's the new one? The Girl Who Takes an Eye for an Eye. Yeah, The Girl Who Takes an Eye for an Eye will be coming out later this year. And you know what? I can't blame the people for wanting to do it because the simple fact of the matter is knowing what we know about the inventions that Larson took with his life and relating that stuff with his life combined with the realities of what he was trying to do and what he did do uh, in his accomplishments, limited though they were, they were still important for what they were doing. I don't know that the series would have continued on or would have done everything that it would have done had he lived. But he didn't. We are where we are. People still want it. I mean, good Lord, look at the fucking Robert Jordan books that are out there. Are you fucking serious right now? And the Bourne books and stuff that continue to be written. Tom Clancy. No, Tom Clancy didn't write the Bourne books. But Tom no, Clancy, no, no, just, yeah, sure. I'm just saying yeah, there's, Tom Clancy there's also. a bunch of Tom Clancy's books that aren't even written by Tom Clancy. That's just the title of the book. Yeah, because, you know, Tom Clancy's Rainbow Six and whatever. Right. So I, I get it. If there's a public out there that wants it, then they are going to do it. Uh, then, the, then there's going to be someone who's going to try and find a way to solve that problem. Yeah, you know, yay capitalism. But it is important to note, though, that the rights go back to Larson's family, not his girlfriend. Um, just quickly here, just just two lines again from this Rolling Stone article, just to provide you with both sides. The Rolling Stone article, "The Mystery of the Dragon Tattoo," Stig Larson. The world's best-selling and most enigmatic author, quote, The debate over the money has captivated the Swedish press. With both sides coming off badly, the family has spent almost none of Larson's money. Joachim draws a salary of about $3,500 a month, and the only outward indication Erland gives of wealth are the brown suede gloves he wears when driving his Kia, but they have been demonized for excluding Gabrielsson, Quote, in Sweden, we are seen as greedy, brutal relatives. We have a very bad reputation, end quote. Gabrielsson, for her part, has stopped giving interviews. She says, quote, I am done with refuting things about Stig, about me, and about what happened after he died. And that's why she wrote a book about it. But then Larson's family does say that one of the reasons why Larson's girlfriend or whatever, she's wanting the limelight. You know, she just wants the attention because she says she has... 100 or 200 pages of Larson's notes on the fourth book, but she's not going to release it. 
And then later on, more recently, she said that she purged his laptop or his computer. So she probably just deleted it. So you just kind of wonder, did she actually have that stuff available? So all this stuff in the background is coming into play as to... Uh, and I think that definitely adds to the argument or, or the conversation of why or why not we should have more books, let alone why should we have more movies based on these new books and not going back and remaking The Girl Who Played With Fire and The Girl Who Kicked the Hornet's Nest. Well, it's interesting to hear you read that part of the article because the way I read it way back when, when I was looking into this, was because of certain Swedish copyright laws like she wasn't allowed to finish them. Like she wasn't allowed to, to do work on them. Uh, Cause they're not a finished product, whatever it was she had. Right. They weren't finished. They were Swedish, but um, ching. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I couldn't, I don't know if I believe the purged laptop thing. No, that's not what I want to say. I want to say, uh, yeah, when I hear I purged a laptop, that sounds fishy, right? Totally. But getting back to, do we need more books? Sure, I get it. This is the conversation between, you know, well, should we make more money or should we hold ourselves the, the artist integrity, you know? Because, I mean, like, there, there's a lot of broke artists with integrity. Like, there's no way around it, right? However, this book, this David Beercracker guy, I, I don't I don't think it was a badly written book, but, like, when when you read the first three books, you know, you, you come away, like you remember these details. You remember them for a long time. Certain details just jump out at you. Like it's part of the story. Whereas I had to go look up a, the uh, kind of a synopsis of the plot of girl with the spider web, because I know like I, I listened to it on audiobook. Nothing stood out. Nothing grabbed you the way that Stig's original three books did. Sure. The debate between, and I know I'm trying to, jumping a little bit here but like the debate between should we have new books or should we not yeah go for it whatever man make money i don't care but if you're a fan of the first three i don't think it carries over that well at all but that could also be the oh i i love this thing that i'm idolizing oh you've challenged it no you're terrible mm -hmm. you know cover versions are never better than the original you know stuff sure. like that so you read the Girl in the Spider's Web, at least, well, you didn't attempt to read it. You did get the audio, not the audio recording. Yeah, I I, I had it read to you. You had it read to you. Now, <laughs> yes. what is the book about? There, you know what, I, I got to pull up a plot. Again, it, it's just, it's so forgettable. There was um something to do with a hacker group and gee, it just really was forgettable. Even when I, even when I looked through the plot here just none of it really looks familiar even like it like does it focus more on salander because i know this is going to be sony's sequel slash reboot of their franchise and one of the reasons why right. they didn't continue with the girl who played with fire wasn't because of david fincher but it was daniel craig and because the girl the dragon tattoo remake only made a little over 200 million worldwide on a budget of ninety million, which isn't that great, they wanted to really scale back and the that's budget. Mostly actors, we decided to. What's right? that? I said, oh, sorry, I was just saying that's mostly the paying for the actors. We decided. Oh, yeah, to, I mean, right? yeah, yeah, like, the actors, the directors, but then like, and then another thing was like the production itself was probably was a little too flashy and maybe a little too grandiose. Like, think of like, I mean, not only just the CGI, but the camera movements and like where they shot and all that. So they're wanting to scale back the cost. Well, around the time. 
when they were doing negotiations for the girl uh, who played with fire, that was around when Skyfall came out. And Skyfall for Daniel Craig was a huge movie. It was, I think, the highest grossing Bond movie. One of the highest grossing movies of 2012. And so Daniel Craig came back. No, you're, you're willing to cut back my salary. I want to get paid more, if anything. And so they came back and said, well, if Daniel Craig wants to get paid more, we're still negotiating this. What we're going to do is we're going to do two scripts of the movie. So they rehired Steve Zalian, who did the, the, the script for the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo remake. They paid him, a, like I think, a million bucks to write that script. So the people at Sony, come hell or high water, they basically said, we're going to do this movie because we paid for that goddamn script. Well, then some, they brought somebody else in. I don't know if it was the same guy or not who wrote a second draft of the script, but wrote out Nyquist. So Daniel Craig wasn't even going to be in the movie. So it was going to be mainly Salander. Wow. And then over time, I guess then now with the release of these new books, they're going to go ahead and focus more on Lisbeth. One of my main questions is, do the new books, at least The Girl in the Spider's Web, does it focus, if you remember, does it focus more on Salander than Bloomkiss? Because I know Mikkel is in the book. No, it... It focused more on Bloomquist, I thought, but it, if Stig Larson based Bloomquist on himself, then, you know, you could say he kind of had a high self-esteem because he, he slept with a few women and it really didn't take much romancing, but anybody who's ever hung out with women like that knows, like, there are times when you just sleep with a woman and it doesn't take much romancing and she's not romancing you and there's, like, casual sex is a thing, whereas uh, this uh, David Beercracker guy, he really kind of focused on, like, I remember there was one scene that was supposed to be a big deal, like, it was written to be a big deal, but it really wasn't a big deal, and it was some... I forget who, but a, a woman that, that Bloomquist tried to, you know, seduce and it didn't work. And it was a lot of the book felt like he was trying to rework Bloomquist as a character out of what Stig Larson had, which, like you said about the, the movies, you know, Bloomquist in general is written just as a normal guy. He's not a superhero. He spends a lot of the trilogy lost and confused, which leads to the moments of brilliance when he figures stuff out. Whereas the, David uh, just really seemed to try and kind of shit on that. And in a way, I think also kind of tried to blow up slander a little bit into something more impressive than she was, which I just, it's very clear that we are now looking at these characters through a different lens. I was reading comments or something on Amazon about the book and somebody basically just says that Lisbeth goes against the United States security agency. I guess they're purposely oh, trying yeah, to yeah. raise the stakes for them to tackle something else. And maybe, I, I don't know, uncover another conspiracy this time regarding the NSA and cybersecurity. But my last question for you, and probably the most important question. Now, again, this is Sony's planned reboot of David Fincher's 2011 movie. It's going to be directed by Fide Alvarez, who did the movie... Um, oh, Don't Breathe? Don't Breathe. There you go. Yeah, Don't Breathe. I still haven't seen that. It's pretty good, but it's directed by the, the director, Fide Alvarez, who directed that one, who also did the Evil Dead remake movie, and it'll come out October 19th, 2018. So, so pretty quickly. So my last question to you is, of what you remember of the book and of the story, will it make 
for a good movie. Yes. <laughs> let, let me expand. I think if you're going to start making movies, I think it's the right move because this is the next generation of the Millennium Saga. Whereas books two and three were definitely written as more of a, a TV show mentality where it's like you, you could kind of see certain arcs happening inside an overall you know season long arc. I think the first three are, are really just kind of built for that more TV show. Whereas this book is it's a movie book. It it's made so you could tell this whole story in two hours. I know the book is shorter. Uh, word count wise than the rest. And this is kind of like, you know, somebody asked, you know, should they reboot the matrix or tell a different story? Like tell more stories in that universe. Go ahead. You know, use these characters, go ahead. But there's a certain original trilogy thing that it's like, like you wouldn't remake star Wars. Would you go back and actually remake the original ones? Yeah. Oh no, not at all. You know what I mean? I like, you not. can make a bunch of Star Wars movies in that universe with those characters and have it still be, you know, on par with Star Wars, which, hey, I enjoy watching, but, you know, it's not a religious experience. I don't care what nobody says. And I and I kind of feel like, yeah, Sony, do that. Take this universe. Go on. Because Fincher's approach for the first movie, I definitely don't think would have made for a second, a good second and third movie. Well, and, and again, right, this is coming from me who's like, you know, I've got all these story beats in my head and it's like, well, which story beats do you start cutting out to get two and a half hour movie out of this? But sure. I think this is a good way to kind of, you know, respect the original source material by like, yes, that exists. This exists. Maybe one day they'll do a, a proper American release of the original trilogy. But I, th I think this is a good way to move that series forward. And and I think it's going to take uh, David Beercracker a few, a few attempts at it to really kind of find his voice. But ultimately the characters are different. This is, this is a different generation of, of this story. And I think it'll be interesting. I agree with you, uh, especially with me going back and doing more research and rewatching all these. I think the, the originals did it so well. David Fincher remade the movie that was most important to jumpstart these characters, to make the U.S. audience familiar with these characters. And if you're going to skip two books and go into, go into new territory, I'm totally fine with that. Because I personally just don't see the second movies needing a remake because they, they were done so well. If this is a way for us to continue the series, especially since with Mikkel uh, Nyquist passing earlier this year he's he they can't go back and, and make these movies so why not why not the u.s why, why don't we just go ahead and carry on the adaptions of these films with the new books so i'm totally fine with that and the great thing johnny and matt is that with the new book coming out in september around the time you the audience is probably listening to this episode the girl takes an eye for an eye will would have been released next year we're going to have the film version of The Girl in the Spider's Web, there will be a part three. So we will all be able to join forces and figure out if what we were saying was actually worth saying. And Johnny, thank you for joining us. I think this was a lot of fun. Kind of like I said the end of last episode, you know, Matt, Tim, thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun for me. And uh, there is just a lot of this series in general, be it books, movie, whatever, that... I mean, I, I could sit here and talk for another couple more hours. I mean, it might not be entertaining listening, but it's 
it's the type of thing where I just I just love talking about this because you do got the little bit of behind the scenes situation. Matt, you were right. Yes, it's totally preventable, but you know, showing a girl how to use a condom after she's pregnant is is kind of where we're at. It's like preventable, yes, but this was the hand we were dealt. And that's just kind of where, where this thing is at. Like I said, I could, I, I'm going to stop rambling now because it, I've been fascinated by everything involved with this series. And once again, guys, thanks for having me. I feel like I kind of should probably mention, you know, johnnywhitetrash.com and White Trash Show on all the social medias because <laughs> despite popular belief, I'm not an influencer. I'm just a guy with a podcast. Thanks again, guys. Man, this really was a lot of fun. I am so glad that we got an opportunity to do this together. Also want to say thank you to Johnny for joining us today. This has really been a whole heck of a lot of fun, and I cannot wait to hear the fruits of our labor on this endeavor. This is Jake Buras concluding the discussion on Stig Larson's Millennium Trilogy and beyond. Join us next week for a brand new episode of the SLS cast, and stay tuned for more errors of continuity in October, when the subject will be the Halloween film series. Shaving Mirror and Hustle are the tracks featured on the program, and are brought to you by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com. That's I-N-C-O-M-P-E-T-E-C-H dot com. The guest for our inaugural episodes, again, was Johnny White Trash, and you can find him over at johnnywhitetrash.com and on Twitter at White Trash Show. Since Errors of Continuity is a podcast presented by the SLS Cast, you can find our show over at slscast.com on Twitter at the SLS Cast, and you can always follow Matt on Twitter at nitwit12345 and me, Tim, on Twitter if you can find me. Take care, cinephiles, and we'll talk at you again next week. <laughs>